Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and welcome to Loving Liberty. Good to be back on the air. It was a great weekend. We'll be talking a lot about the uh, Salt Lake City Rally, uh, Utah Business Revival. Mostly we'll do that in the next hour. That's because the second hour of our broadcast is carried on K-Talk Radio in Salt Lake City. So uh, I, I want to, I have some remarks specifically for the audience there. I'm going to wait until the next hour to share them. But I will say this, that uh, that was a resounding success. <laughs> and I mean... There were a ton of people who showed up, and and if there's one thing that just that was a huge takeaway for me, it was the incredible diversity of the people who showed up. And I don't say this lightly, but I mean, uh, Utah's uh, Pride Festival is coming up in June, and I think that uh, you would be hard pressed to find greater diversity at the Pride Parade than you saw at this uh, this rally last Saturday. A lot of great people there as well, and uh, and of course, uh, varying interests from from the news media. Most of it negative, but uh, hey, you know, somebody's got to suck up to authority, and I guess that's, that's what they consider their job. So we have a lot of interesting things to cover in this hour of the broadcast. Um, I am going to share with you some thoughts uh, towards the end of the, the segment here, actually towards the end of the, the podcast here, from Eric's, uh, Eric Mutsos, who was one of the people spearheading this effort to, uh, to get people to stand for their rights, to encourage civic leaders, take your, your stay-at-home orders and, and uh, you know, uh, let business open. Let people with informed consent, you know, resume their lives as best they can. And he actually has some really interesting thoughts, some painful truths, but some empowering ones as well that, that we'll discuss here in just a few minutes. In the meantime, got a great commentary from, uh, from John Miltimore. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. And, and this, this answers one of the questions, or at least it seeks to answer one of the questions that has been troubling me. And that is, why is everyone looking to the federal government? Why do we look to them as, oh, well, this is where all of the answers to our prayers are likely to come from. This is how we're going to, you know, know when it's okay for us to look to the left or look to the right or stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. You get the idea. It's like we're waiting for a prompt. And John Miltimore writes about how the media and Trump need a civics lesson on the Tenth Amendment and federalism. Now, just in a nutshell, what he's talking about here is, look, COVID-19 is a serious matter, but not so serious that we should eviscerate the Constitution to combat it. And the Tenth Amendment makes it abundantly clear that police powers reside with state and local governments. So stop clamoring to the feds to, to do something, do something. Here's how John Miltimore puts it. He says the vast majority of nations around the world have ordered economic closures and stay-at-home orders in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, there are exceptions both abroad and here in the States. In the U.S., 42 states have issued stay-at-home orders with the goal of, quote, flattening the curve to reduce the spread of the virus and avoid overwhelming health care centers. As a result, 95% of Americans are under some kind of lockdown order. Still, a handful of states have tried a lighter touch akin to what we've seen in Taiwan and Sweden. Oklahoma, Wyoming, and Utah have ordered partial lockdowns. A pair of states, Iowa and North Dakota, ordered non-essential businesses to close, but have yet to mandate that residents stay home for non-essential travel. Three states, Arkansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota, have not issued business closures, closures rather, or stay-at-home orders. Now, the fact that many states haven't responded uniformly to the crisis 
seems to rankle many within the media. As NPR reports, the leaders of these states have come under increased scrutiny for not taking a hardline approach. CNN correspondent Jeff Zeleny noted that by embracing this state's rights defiance, his words, by the way, state leaders, quote, collectively ignored the stay-at-home pleas of Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, end quote. Well, one White House reporter last week went so far as to ask the president why he hasn't simply ordered all businesses to shut down in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, we know anyone can spread the disease unwittingly, correspondent Owen Jensen said. So why even have a few businesses open? Why not just shut everything down? Now, as John Miltimore points out, that's a bizarre question. And not just because one wonders how hundreds of millions of people would get food if the nation's stores were simply ordered closed by executive decree. The idea that the president of the United States should or even could order states to close their businesses and order Americans to stay in their homes is both dangerous and constitutionally suspect. Just as constitutionally suspect, if not more so, is President Trump's assertion that he can force states to open their economies. This last week, Trump told reporters, when somebody is the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. It's total. This is when he was asked if he had the authority to rescind state public health orders. Now, Trump, to his credit, has backed off this claim. But the fact that the president and the media are even making such statements is troubling, says John Miltimore. And he's right. The Tenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution makes it abundantly clear that police powers reside with state and local governments, not Washington, D.C., As scholars Lawrence Gostin and Sarah Wetter recently noted in The Atlantic, executive actions ordering states to open or close their economies would be legally murky at best. Gostin says constitutional authority for ordering major public health interventions such as mass quarantines and physical distancing lies primarily with U.S. states and localities via their police powers, a drastic difference from the national authorities of countries like China and Italy. Now, remember, Gostin is a law professor at Georgetown, Wetter a law fellow at Georgetown's O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law. John Miltimore says such basic civics used to be taught to the American school children across the land, but apparently this is no longer the case. Perhaps some believe constitutional niceties are well and good in normal times, but states of emergency call for extra constitutional means. Well, if it's the latter, fine, but... Let's at least be clear that people are seeking to subvert the Constitution for some alleged greater good. And if the president ordered states to enforce lockdowns, however, this action would not only be unlawful, but it would also be unwise. The findings of a groundbreaking white paper published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, Yale University and BMJ suggest mass lockdowns may not be the best way to combat the novel coronavirus. Analyzing data from Sweden... Switzerland, the Netherlands, Portugal, Germany, Italy, Belgium, and Spain, as well as New York City, Louisiana, Michigan, and Washington State. These researchers concluded that COVID-19 deaths are remarkably uncommon for individuals under the age of 65 who don't have pre-existing health conditions. Now, in pandemic hotbeds like the Netherlands, Italy, Italy rather, and New York City, people in this category accounted for just 0.3%, 0.7%, and 1.8% of all COVID-19 deaths. Again, this is according to researchers. They said the COVID-19 death risk in people under 65 years old during the period of fatalities from the epidemic 
was the equivalent to the death risk from driving between nine miles a day in Germany and 415 miles per day in New York City. And this is from scholars John P.A. Ioannidis, Catherine Axfors, and Despina G. Contopolis Ioannidis. Strategies focusing specifically on protecting high-risk elderly individuals should be considered in managing the pandemic. Now, as John Miltimore says, these, these findings suggest mass lockdowns may not be the ideal method for containing COVID-19. At the very least, they suggest there's no need for a uniform approach. I'm sorry, I want to applaud. We don't need one size fits all to address this, but that's what some people are clamoring for. He says, intuitively, one might suspect that the best solution for New York State, which has a metropolitan area that has 26,403 people per square mile, may not be the same as that of Wyoming, which has a population density of 5.8 people per square mile. And the data appear to bear this out. While sweeping state actions may be required in New York, which currently has 226,000 cases and more than 16,000 deaths, there's little hard evidence to suggest that such actions are required in Wyoming or other sparsely populated states. Wyoming, which has registered just 400 cases, has had a grand total of two COVID-19 deaths. North Dakota and South Dakota combined have had just 16 deaths and 1,700 cases. So to put that in perspective, more people died of the flu in South Dakota last season than of COVID-19. And what many fail to recognize is that federalism is not a weakness of America, but it's, it's actually its strength. As Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandis famously observed, they are our laboratories of democracy. John Miltimore says because of federalism, we're seeing that there are various ways to combat COVID-19. And we may learn from these holdouts that perhaps mass shutdowns were unnecessary or in some cases even counterproductive. Or maybe not. It's possible that states may need to shift from no shutdown to a partial shutdown or from a partial shutdown to a full shutdown should COVID-19 cases spike. Either way, though, he says state leaders are perfectly capable of making such decisions. COVID-19, he says, is a serious matter, but not so serious that we should be eviscerating the Constitution to combat it. Amen. Well said, John Miltimore. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. We'll take a quick break. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, uh, yes, over the weekend, I did have a chance to attend the uh, Utah Business Revival Rally in Salt Lake City. And I have to say, on the whole, it was a very, very positive event. Now, I understand that some people who made the walk from the Salt Lake City, uh, the city-county building up to the state capitol, <clears throat> they encountered a little bit of, uh, how can I say this, unneighborliness or some, some rather uh, uh, untoward behavior from, from people who were shouting things at them and so forth. But uh, for the most part, I mean, look, I parked, uh, I parked far away and walked in and walked back. Never had a single problem, not even so much as a dirty look from anybody uh, as I walked along there with my sons and my friend Jared. It was, it was a great experience. And I have to say, you, you've heard me say before, I get so tired 
of the whole social justice warrior mentality where everyone is wrong. Everyone must feel guilty. And because you are wrong and you must feel guilty, I should have control over you. Got sick of that a long time ago. And it's been nice that they have been very quiet of late, but uh, taking the place, filling the gap of the social justice warriors, we now have the uh, the health obedience warriors who are just as obnoxious and, and in some cases maybe even a little more hateful in the sense that they will actually sit there and wish death on people. I hope you get sick. I hope you lie there gasping and waiting for a respirator that will never be available because you left your home. Yeah. I mean, it's it it's just demonic the, the way some people behave. And I think both of these uh, examples, social justice warriors, as well as the health obedience warriors, are forgetting something very important about the, the spiritual as well as the philosophical structure upon which this nation was founded. And that is one that does not require complete, absolute uh, conformity in every person. That, that one-size-fits-all approach that we referenced in the, in the last segment. It can apply to a lot more than just, you know, how states handle, you know, their their approach to pandemics. It applies to our thinking as well. Anders Koskinen, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has some incredibly wise words from what some would consider maybe an unlikely source, and that is uh, former President Herbert Hoover. Yes, yeah, that President Hoover. It was a Depression-era rebuke but it applies very well for social justice warriors today. Here's what he says. Anders Koskinen says, At present, the the previously incessant caterwauling of the social justice warriors has died down. With college campuses shuttered by the coronavirus pandemic and college administrations wondering if students will ever return, the hotbeds of liberal academia and far-left political activism have fallen silent for the present, at least. Student activism in the popular imagination is often confined to two distinct eras, the Vietnam War protests of the early of the 60s and early 70s and the reign of terror visited upon campuses by social justice warriors in the last few years. Now, the latter strikes a a confusing contrast rather with the former. While students at the University of California, Berkeley in the 60s ostensibly campaigned to openly express political opinions, today's social justice warriors campaign to shut down any political opinion that doesn't fit their collectivist identitarian dogmas. The students of the flower child generation would have found an unlikely ally in former President Herbert Hoover. In 1936, Hoover gave a speech titled The Challenge to Liberty, in large part a condemnation of the centralization and redistribution inherent in the New Deal. Hoover's speech touches on cultural issues that students at Berkeley could have quoted in their arguments with enthusiasm. Today's students, however, would likely look past these arguments, preferring to condemn Hoover as a privileged, homophobic, racist white male instead. Consider what Hoover had to say. Quote, the transcendent issue before us today is free men and women. Sorry, guys, he just had the two genders. That's all that we knew back then. Going on, he said, how do we test freedom? It is not a catalog of political rights. It is a thing of the spirit. Men must be free to worship, to think, to hold opinions, to speak without fear. They must be free to challenge wrong and oppression with surety of justice. Freedom conceives that the mind and spirit of man can be free only if he be free to pattern his own life, to develop his own talents, free to earn, to spend, to save, to acquire property as the security of his old age and his family. End quote. 
That's pretty timeless stuff right there. I mean, I'm not hearing anything that I can disagree with. And trust me, I look for reasons to disagree or at least reasons where I might take a little different approach. But that sounds pretty solid. Anders Koskinen says this call for freedom to worship would surely be a non-starter for many social justice warriors today. After all, if one holds traditional views on the LGBT movement or abortion, you must not be suffered to speak in the public square. Freedom to earn, spend, and save all sound well and good, but who really needs billionaires anyway? These might be unnecessary practices as millennials and Zoomers continue to grow more positive about socialism and more critical of capitalism. Who needs to save when the government will just take care of you, right? But Hoover goes on to defend his list of rights and ideals. Quote, freedom demands that these rights and ideals shall be protected from infringement by others, whether men or groups, corporations or governments. Yeah. Oh, end quote. That that covered pretty much all of it. A stark rebuke, says Anders Koskinen, to any individual or political collective who would seek to suppress by speech, force or government action, the speech of anyone holding views outside of their preferred window of acceptability. And there's more from Hoover. Quote, the conviction of our fathers was that all these freedoms come from the creator and that they can be denied by no man or no government or no new deal. They were spiritual rights of men. The prime purpose of liberal government is to enlarge and not to destroy these freedoms. It was for that purpose that the Constitution of the United States was enacted. For that reason, we demand that the safeguards of freedom shall be upheld. End quote. And Anders Koskinen says this is the problem, that Americans who value the Founding Fathers, the Constitution, and the rights it seeks to guarantee face. Many of their fellow countrymen today refuse to accept the philosophical and moral framework of America. As the proportion of Americans who fall into the religious nuns category, as in N-O-N-E-S, continues to grow, there can be little hope of any agreement that rights or freedoms come from the Creator. If they do not come from the Creator, they may as well come from the government, and what the government giveth, the government can taketh away. If there is no spiritual aspect to their lives, there cannot be any spiritual rights of men. Now, Hoover may be a very unpopular president in America's history, and in many American minds, he bears the blame for the Great Depression. Regardless, Hoover was remarkably prescient on the issues Americans faced in 1936, issues which we continue to face today. Can we test freedom today? and find it satisfactory to our designs and those of the Founding Fathers? Or has our culture slipped away from our history to the point where an individual is no longer free to pattern his own life? That's pretty powerful stuff. He says it well, and he says it in very few words. Again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Anders Koskinen, a Depression-era rebuke for social justice warriors. And I know sometimes it makes people uncomfortable. I, I, I don't get this a lot, but I, I know that I have friends who have pulled me aside and said, Brian, it makes me uncomfortable when you talk about things, you know, in a spiritual sense. And you refer to, you know, liberty as a gift from God. Our rights come from our creator. And they say, I don't know if there is a God. I'm not telling you there isn't one. I'm just saying, I don't know that there is. And it makes me uncomfortable when, you know, you, you talk about spiritual things in the context of some of the political or social or, um, you know, otherwise societal things that are going on. 
But I like what Anders Koskinen pointed out here, and that is if your rights don't come from the creator, if there's not a higher moral authority than government itself, then you're setting yourself up to where government will be the ultimate moral authority. And that's when everything shifts from from a, a clear understanding of what is right and what is wrong to simply what is legal and what is illegal. You do see the difference, right? If there is a higher moral authority or at least a competing moral authority to government, that means that we can hold government accountable for acts that are not right. And if, if our rights just come from government, well, then I guess we do whatever whoever's in power says we can do. And we are back. This is Loving Liberty. Thanks again for joining us on our broadcast and podcast. By the way, if you uh, if you haven't downloaded the app to your iPhone or to your Android, please uh, search it up in the App Store. You'll find it. It's easy to find. Just Loving Liberty. It's absolutely free of charge. And best of all, it gives you access to us 24-7. We are streaming audio 24-7. We have wonderful hosts. And if I could be so bold, one of the things that, uh, that differentiates our hosts from uh, a lot of the political talk out there is uh, the vast majority of our hosts are not caught up in the red state, blue state, tug of war mentality. That's what seems to drive a lot of discussion these days. And it's it's good to have people who speak the language of liberty, who are more grounded in the principles of uh, of and practices of liberty, as opposed to, well, which party is going to make my life better and which party is going to make my life worse? Certainly those are considerations, but ultimately they're not the most important considerations. And if you find value in, in taking a more principled approach, feel free to share us with your friends. All right. Another excellent uh, commentary from my friend Barry Brownstein. I love his writing. I love his approach. He has a way of helping me see the world through new eyes and such a timely, timely message. After Trump, who will progressives hate? Now, before I before I share this with you, I want to make really clear. Barry Brownstein is not operating as some some kind of a, you know, Trump, you know, tub thumper and trying to get everybody to, to rally behind Trump. He's pointing something out here, though, that is should be easily recognizable for anyone who's been paying attention since, oh, I guess about 2015 or so, but certainly throughout all of Trump's presidency. And there's a cautionary tale here for all of us about what happens if we allow hate or anger to become the the driving forces in our purpose in life. So check this out. After, After Trump, who will progressives hate? Barry Brownstein writes, Recently, New York City's comptroller, Scott Stringer, suffered the loss of his mother, Arlene Stringer Cuevas. Stringer Cuevas died at age 86 due to complications from COVID-19. Labeling his pain as incalculable, Stringer appeared on CNN to proclaim his anger. And during an interview with Anderson Cooper, Stringer lashed out, quote, Donald Trump has blood on his hands, and he has my mom's blood on his hands, end quote. Now, Brownstein points out Stringer's grief is certainly understandable. Were any of us in the same boat, we'd likely engage in finger pointing as well. Indeed, in the current coronavirus social climate, folks are banding together looking for someone to blame. 
That blame often falls on Donald Trump. But why? Well, he says it all makes sense to Eric Hoffer. In The True Believer, Hoffer sheds light on how mass movements use hatred as a unifying force. Hoffer writes, Hatred is the most accessible and comprehensive of all unifying agents. The hater, Hoffer adds, becomes an anonymous particle quivering with a craving to fuse and coalesce with his like into one flaming mass. Does that ring true or not? And Barry Brownstein writes, mass movements also need a devil. And Hoffer explains that, you know, for some time in history, the devil has been the Jews or that devil has, has been the Jews. But in current times, the devil is often Trump. So whether you pick Jews or Trump as your devil, haters will make everything the fault of their devil. Now, today, some haters believe a Jewish conspiracy is behind COVID-19. Is their hatred different from those who believe that Trump is the COVID devil? And again, quoting Eric Hoffer, like an ideal deity, the ideal devil is omnipotent and omnipresent. Every difficulty and failure within the movement is the work of the devil, and every success is a triumph over his evil plotting. And Barry Brownstein says to progressives full of hate, Trump is behind every evil in the world. Now, just as a quick aside, I see this daily in, in Facebook and other social media postings by, by people who I'm friends with, people who I love and, and people who I respect, who nonetheless have, have given Trump rent-free residency in their minds, and that's all they think about all the time. There is no story, there is nothing, no development that can take place that they're not weighing and gauging in terms of, did Trump make this better or worse? You know, it's, and it's always they're looking for the way that he made it worse or that somehow he's to blame. It's 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 pathological. But how do you get someone to, to consider such a thing when it becomes their purpose? Who will the progressives hate after Trump? Is the question that Barry Brownstein is asking here. And I think it's a fair question. Growing anti-Semitism in the progressive movement makes the Jews an obvious target. He says more likely progressives will escalate their attacks on the wealthy or others they claim have privilege. In line with Hoffer's observation, they will expand their definition of those they consider wealthy to anyone who has achieved success. With an economy devastated by a prolonged shutdown and millions of college graduates majored, who majored in worthless subjects, progressives have a combustible mixture to exploit. Hoffer writes, passionate hatred can give meaning and purpose to an empty life. Such people dedicate themselves to a holy cause. And already vigilantes call the police on their neighbors for allegedly overstepping lockdown rules. Hoffer points to people whose lives are barren and insecure as they show a greater willingness to obey. Holy cow, does that ring true? And listen to this quote, again from Eric Hoffer. He says to the frustrated, freedom from responsibility is more attractive than freedom from restraint. They are eager to barter their independence for relief from the burdens of willing, deciding, and being responsible for inevitable failure. They willingly abdicate the directing of their lives to those who want to plan, command, and shoulder all responsibility. End quote. And by the way, Hoffer warns in times of crisis to obey is the only firm point in a chaotic day-by-day -day existence. End quote. 
Barry Brownstein says, looking at the irrational hatred for Trump being sown, he says, I fear the coming of an authoritarian government, the likes of which we have never imagined, ushered in by progressives in a not-so-distant dystopian future. Now, that may sound kind of bleak, but I think there is a very strong vibe of reality in what he is warning about here. And I don't just limit this to the progressives, okay? And I, I say this from the understanding of there is a time when, yes, even I was enemy-driven, fear-driven. The fact that I talk about this stuff to some may make it sound like, well, you're fear-driven right now. You fear that, uh, this coming dystopian government. <clears throat> I don't know. Fear doesn't dictate how I live my life. Case in point, uh, if I were really that fearful of an individual, there's no way I would have gone to this rally that took place in Salt Lake City last Saturday. There's no way that I would have been up there shaking hands with and even hugging individuals whom I love and respect and have not seen for a long time. Yes, I'm concerned. I don't want to catch coronavirus. I don't want to get COVID-19. But I understand that uh, there are things we can do to mitigate those things. And uh, Anyway, I didn't hug anybody who I didn't feel comfortable in hugging. I didn't shake hands with anybody I didn't feel comfortable shaking hands with. And I practiced, you know, good hygiene and did not touch my face or pick my nose or anything like that. But there's no way that I was going to let just the fear of somebody in that crowd of a thousand or more people might have the virus. It's possible. The risk was there. I mean, it's, it's absolutely possible that somebody did. It's possible that people may actually get sick from having attended that. But having weighed the risk versus the risk of allowing um, government at many levels to just assume all power and control over my life. Yeah, I'll face the fear. I'll take my chances and and I will continue to live my life because, frankly, you know, being being a prisoner who survived without ever getting the virus is a pretty sucky consolation prize. It's not one that I would be interested in. All right. But back to the, the, the main premise here is don't let hatred be the driving force in your life. And, and the one place where I'm seeing this now, I kind of, you know, I talked about the social justice warriors in the last segment. It's the obedience, the health obedience warriors who have risen up to take the place of the social justice warriors. It's scolding and shaming everybody around them. You're not wearing a mask. You're not properly social distancing. You left your house. I saw you take your children. You had more than two people in your car. Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to report you to the authorities. That's the kind of irrational hatred coupled with someone else's lust to dominate that is going to usher in the kind of dystopian future that Barry Brownstein is warning against. The authoritarians are already feeling their oats. They're, they're getting that contact high from rubbing up against authority the way a cat rubs up against catnip. You can't stop them or out-argue them or otherwise convince them they're, they're the error of your ways. But what you can do is not become one of them. Don't let that kind of mindset come into the world through you or me. That's what we can do. Don't let fear and hatred drive your purpose in life. We'll be back right after this.
And once again, we are back. This is the final segment of the first hour of the broadcast. We'll be talking a little bit more about the uh, the Utah Business Revival Rally that took place over the weekend in Salt Lake City. That's coming up in the next hour. And again, it's because that hour is broadcast live on KTalk Radio in Salt Lake. And I want to make sure that I'm reaching that Salt Lake audience uh, with some of the thoughts on that. But nonetheless... Um, Eric Mutzos was one of the guys who was behind this uh, this effort to to encourage people to come out, show your support, not only for businesses, but also your support for your individual liberties. And this is I, I want to tell you, it's kind of a daring thing in the sense that, you know, there, there's some risk there. Salt Lake's Salt Lake County's mayor, Aaron Mendenhall, I believe, had issued a, uh, some kind of an edict saying, well, you know, we're going to we're going to ticket. We'll cite people. For, for leaving their homes or for, for violating what she called her stay-at-home order. Now, that was actually rescinded right before the event took place. But, you know, it's, it's just, it's crazy. There, people are being backed into a corner. Some of us recognize this. Many are very uh, fearful and afraid. Well, but we'll all die if we don't do what we're told. And so they, they're very resentful when someone says, I, I can't uh, I can't follow these commands because that's not legitimate authority over my life and what is essential in my life and what isn't by someone in some position of authority. Eric Mutsos, I applaud him for standing up for this when he asked me last week, are you going to come to the rally? I, my answer was, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be there. And then he asked me, are you willing to be arrested for it? And I had to go. Uh, let me think for a second here. Do I feel strongly enough about this that I'd be willing to risk arrest for standing up for what I believe in? And my answer was, yes, I do believe uh, I, I'm willing to be arrested. But I did give the qualifier. I, I probably should talk to my wife first and you know let her know that here's what I'm thinking, because this could impact her as well. But we went. It was no big deal. It was a good experience. But Eric had some thoughts after that Saturday rally. And I want to share these with you, and I'm going to warn you. He is looking at uh, at some pretty, he's looking at some frightening possibilities here. He's not doing this for the sake of, ooh, let's scare everybody. I think he's being realistic. And I also think he's asking a lot of the right questions. He says, someone walk me through how this, is, how, how, uh, this doesn't happen if we stayed shut down for too much longer. And he's going to paint a scenario for us. This is what he's asking about. Like even in even in major cities like L.A. and New York, he says, I don't mean to write these things to scare. He says, I mean, to truly ask, how do these things not happen if we crash into a deep depression coupled with this pandemic response we're seeing? And he invites whoever hears this or reads this, and I'll have a link to the Facebook link or Facebook post he did so you can check it out for yourself. He says, feel free to dig down deeper into this rabbit hole with me. Hopefully your thoughts are more positive than mine if we do crash completely. But this is what could happen. He says once the economy crashes, because it will, and a huge percentage of businesses go out because they will, the government will start writing check after check after check. It's already doing this, right? And he says it will be for help. When in reality, it will only speed up our death. But people won't see it that way. It'll be like slowly eating poison. And the virus will still be here. Then after each passing week, he says people will cheer each time the money is printed. And it will become a great divide between citizens. Government will be looked at as a type of God to some. Because they believe government is the one saving them. Instead of God. With applause. The politicians will literally become worshipped because they have the way and the life to all who come. Sound familiar? 
And he says, because $1,500 isn't enough for anyone to live on, you'll see mass inflation. Quick mass inflation. The businesses who are still somewhat alive will have to raise prices in order to pay for the next item they need but can't get, which will do the same for the other industries tied together. Supply and demand will inevitably inflate each item. Let's talk exponentially. Oh, and the virus will still be here. Further, he says, we will see those who are still employed somehow still get stimulus money and everyone around them unemployed will naturally be upset. It'll be a huge conflict because most of the recipients who get the money and who still have jobs from fear they may one day lose their job. Family will fight with family, neighbors with neighbors. But why? And his answer is because the government has no idea who they're giving it to, if they have jobs and in what industry. Think of it. The most unorganized entity on the planet on Earth will be wanting more control and more power over our lives. How does that sound? And scariest of all, depending on the presidential election in November, it could be lights out for America. How? Because the virus will still be there. And the checks will still need mass printed because we crashed the economy, too. Killing two eagle birds with one giant stone lockdown, and ironically, it's still not the virus that will die. It will be the economy that's supposed to fuel the country, both at the same time. One does not work without the other. And he says certain powerful people know that right now. That's why you're watching the far left side of the aisle positioning against the president to do all of this in the name of saving lives when really it will kill hundreds of thousands, if not several million of their own people in their state. California and the big East Coast cities will be the worst. They will crumble. People will flee. And the new federal powers that be who wear the ring will only send checks to those who do exactly as they command on every issue all in the name of health and safety. Things like social distancing will be in order, but only if you want their money. When they say jump, most of America will ask, how high? Laws of all kinds will be enacted overnight, including religious liberty attacks like we've never seen. Schools and churches will still be closed, while liquor stores and abortion clinics remain open, all in the name of physical and mental health. He says the devil will laugh harder and louder than he has since the Holocaust. And you guessed it, the virus will still be here. Now, this is when we will be divided as a country like never before. Because those who do exactly as the government tells them, and he says, I mean exactly, all in the name of safety, will snitch on those who don't. If they can't follow guidelines, they should get no stimulus. They aren't doing their part. A mob attack, etc., etc. By the way, at least Antifa has the advantage of they're used to wearing masks, right? He says government will come in and purchase the and save these crippling businesses and banks and be praised for it. Governments will start controlling everything and start taking everyone's property. These full on fights and wars between government, the new note holders and the property owners, including land and mortgages, will make what the Bundy family went through look like child's play. In fact, he says people will need to ask Ammon what words to use to defend themselves. What happened to their family was just a witness as to what's coming. States will split apart and possibly close borders. Fights will get larger and larger. Riots, looting, big cities, ghost towns like they still are. Gangs will form and go house to house. Those ready with a firearm will be the most advantaged. Why? All over a lie. All over power. All ultimately over control. Big city police departments will have to make a stand one way or the next. And Eric Mutso says it will be a sight to see who walks away and who stays. 
That'll be one of the biggest conflicts to watch play out. Government breadlines will be longer than we've ever seen, and they will continue to be hailed as the hero and savior. And he says, this is why we must get businesses open ASAP. He says, I think about Abraham Lincoln's quote, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we lose our freedoms, it will be because we have destroyed ourselves from within. No, he says, I hope nothing comes to pass from my tired mind today, but I don't see it any other way if we come crashing down. Now, he says, the good news is that those who come closer to God will feel a light and warmth that nothing else the world, like nothing else the world can bring. A unity in faith stronger than anything ever felt. Why? Because the world will have taken all the luxurious, addictive things that the world has been producing for us for so long. We won't know what hit us if our comfort isn't in God himself. And ironically, this is when all people will have to choose between God and government. And he says, God help us be inspired to do something now. Now, this may not be a direction that you're comfortable in going. So I'm just going to warn you that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go there. I think Eric has the right point here, though. Look, economically, this I don't even like to think about it. I don't like to think about the economic consequences that have been set in motion. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. The currency is being debased, these checks that are being sent out, the incredible amount of spending that's going on. This is not something that can continue indefinitely. It's going to come to a stop at some point. We will all feel some pain at that point. But I find hope in the same source that Eric is pointing to for his hope, and that is, if there was ever a time to humble yourself and ask for God's help, this is it. It doesn't mean that the rain isn't going to fall on you. It doesn't mean that you're not going to feel pain or experience suffering or hardship. It means that you'll be able to weather those kinds of things and come through on the other side intact and maybe even a better person in the same way that a diamond comes out of all that heat and pressure refined. But my opinion is much like that of Eric's, and that is, if there is any source for hope, it is God, and I hope that's something that we can figure out sooner than later. This is Loving Liberty. Loving Liberty. 